0: This is Human Coined, a series that unpacks the mechanics of public finance, the complexities of democracy, and the societies they ultimately shape. I'm your host, Jeff Dubrow. Join me in a social dialogue that cracks open important issues that are too often ignored here at home and around the world. Manju Varma, Commissioner for Systemic Racism in the province of New Brunswick. Great to have you here.
1: Thank you, Jeff. It's great to be here.
0: Tell us a bit about what this position entailed.
1: Absolutely. So um, the first thing I want to say is it was the first provincial uh, position as a commissioner on systemic racism. There are a couple, I believe, Montreal and maybe Calgary, have uh, municipal commissioners on systemic racism with a very different mandate. But from a Canada-wide perspective, you know, New Brunswick's uh, New Brunswick showed a lot of courage and a lot of leadership by having this position as its first in Canada. Uh, my mandate was, was pretty broad. Uh, I was asked to look at the extent and scope of systemic racism for all racialized, marginalized communities. So that includes international students, our indigenous communities, our long-standing communities, for example, um, our black communities our our, uh, newcomers, our longstanding immigrants. So really a a breadth of anyone who is part of a racialized community in New
0: Brunswick. And what was the experience like?
1: Uh, Big picture, uh, it was extremely draining. Um, I have no fear in saying that, uh, you know, there were days that it was actually quite traumatic. Um, even though my mandate focused on systemic racism, a lot of people, you know, don't know the difference between overt and systemic racism, um, in particular with people who are experiencing it. So it was nothing for me to have three, four calls a day with people explaining their overtly racist experiences. And, you know, you listen to those stories of vulnerable people, vulnerable children, um, and uh, yeah, it gets to you. So, big picture, it was really hard. It was, you know, like I said, uh, it was traumatic at times. Not just for me, but for my team as well. Mm-hmm. You know, there were times where I just had to say, okay, everybody, tomorrow, we're we're not talking to anybody. You know, mm-hmm. we're we're going to read, or we're going to focus on something else, or we're going to take the day off. You know, we, we had to do that. Uh, more particularly, the experience was, uh, was really, you know, it was diverse. Um, there are people with very different experiences as racialized communities. Speaking with women, for example, uh, their needs, their concerns, as you can imagine, were completely different than their male counterparts. Even, mm-hmm. you know, if we looked at a tiny microcosm, for example, um, yeah, uh, Muslim new arrivals. Mm-hmm. Even within that that tiny microcosm, um, the differences that the children, the needs the childrens had, the experience they had, versus women, versus seniors who were coming, you know, to join their family, to perhaps be part of childcare, or um, to have support from people who were here, from the the men who were trying to find work, were trying to, you know come to terms with this new culture, this new environment and their role in it. So um, there was a lot of diversity, uh, which sounds ironic that I wouldn't know that or I wouldn't expect that, but it was even at a greater scale than than what I expected.
0: And let's just go back and unpack that overt mm-hmm. versus systemic racism. I think I get a sense of what you're referring to, that you were getting calls from individuals who saw you almost like an ombudsman there yes. too, but maybe you can talk a bit about that.
1: Sure, so overt racism is what We often think of when we hear the word racism. So you're out somewhere and someone calls you a racist name, Mm -hmm. uh, tells you to go back to where you came from, um, overtly tries to harm you, whether it's verbally, physically. Um, You know, in the old days, uh, signs that said, you know, Irish need not apply or Mm -hmm. uh, no Jews allowed those Those are overt practices. There is no confusion right. over the attack that's being made on you. Systemic racism is about policies, about the way we do things that automatically um, um, privilege or advantage mainly the white population, the white mm-hmm. English population, if we look at New Brunswick, mm-hmm. um, and um, and disadvantage other groups. Now, I'm talking about systemic racism, but there's systemic discrimination as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, from a systemic racism perspective, if we think about the school calendar, and this is an example I use a lot because it's it's something a lot of people can connect to, right? Mm -hmm. Either they have children in school or they experience school. The school calendar has not changed dramatically, (laughs) right? I mean, you have children. Is there some holiday that they have now that we haven't had in the last fifty years, right There's very few right. um, But if you were to take out the ones that have to do with the Christian um, the, the Christian religion or the European experience, mm-hmm. there would be very few holidays left yeah. right. So I grew up at a time where, we had Christmas, your biggest vacations were Christmas and Easter, and then summer, of course. Your kids, my kids, grew up with the same calendar. But there are lots of children in our school system right now, um, as our schools become more and more diverse, who celebrate Ramadan, mm-hmm. who celebrate Diwali, who uh, celebrate the high holidays in September, right? So that's a really good example of policies that you don't even think about but they do advantage some people over others.
0: So is that the systemic uh, systemic discrimination or systemic racism?
1: Well, if I would just look at um, the holidays that have to do with, with cultural, with then it would be systemic racism, right? So for example, I have never taken Diwali off. Mm-hmm. Right? Even when I was my own boss, I didn't right. take it off right. because other the rest of the world is still working right so you know i'm sure if i went to my employer and said this is diwali is you know like my christmas can i have the day off they'd probably say yes and think that they're being very inclusive Mm -hmm. however there's probably still important meetings being planned that day and and is that going to change no right it doesn't another example you know when i was at the uh, university of toronto one thing that uh, came to uh, Came to attention was that the MCATs exam was often written during Ramadan. Now, so that means that any Muslim student who is following, you know, their faith and and following Ramadan, is writing that exam, a very important life-changing exam, right? At a time when they're not physically at their peak,
0: mm-hmm. right?
1: and uh, that's a
0: very good point.
1: Yes, you know, and and when it was brought to the attention of the university. It's like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Let's change it. So it's not so much that people don't want to change things to make things more inclusive. It is that they just don't know because systemic racism, systemic discrimination is so part of our fiber. We don't think about it.
0: Mm-hmm. And it's interesting. So you said that um, policies need to change. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a bit more about that?
1: Yes, Um so again, you know, school policies. For example, your attendance matters, mm-hmm. you know, and it should absolutely. But how can we make that more inclusive? So that if you do take time off for Ramadan, if you do take the high holidays off, you know, can those holidays, can those uh, religious observances be exempt? You know, that's a policy thing right? Or does that right now, what that means is if a child takes that off, that they are, they are, you know, they're, they are noted as being absent.
0: Similar to if you were, you know, you were saying about yourself when you were working for yourself, you're choosing to take a day off. It's not a sort of, even if you're an employee, a statutory holiday Mm -hmm. or you're, you can do it, but it's at your own.
1: It's at my own expense. It's a vacation day. Exactly. Whereas, you know, people get Christmas off Mm -hmm. and that's not a vacation day that's given to them, right. Um, so I like to focus on examples like that because they're so normalized. Mm-hmm. They're so simple. You know, um, we well, if we think about systemic discrimination on a wider scale, you know prior to Covid, um, many employers, many managers said, "Well, no, we can't. We can't have people working from home. How will I know that they're working?" That's right. Right, and that disadvantaged people with disabilities. I remember speaking to this one person who asked uh, her employer if, um, on really cold days, um, if she could work from home. She was in a wheelchair, and on super, she was living in Ottawa. On super cold days, the battery in her electric wheelchair would freeze. And so she could only get halfway to work. And what she was told was, no, if you want to be accommodated, you have to let us know which days you're working from home. Like it has to be every Monday or every Wednesday. So they were essentially asking her to predict the weather for winter. Instead of saying, you know what? Yes, we can accommodate that. We need to change the policy because Mm -hmm. policy says that you need to indicate Mm
0: -hmm. which
1: day you're taking off. We, can, we need to change the policy so that when those minus 20 or minus 30 days happen, we're not expecting you to wheel yourself to our office.
0: And I saw a couple of examples in your report where you referred to uh, staff of a particular institution saying, I'm sorry, that's the policy. Mm-hmm. We can't accommodate your, yes. uh, your request. Do yes. you want to give another example or two of, of how that manifested itself?
1: Well, we saw that in the healthcare system. Um, you know, if, uh, on the... Uh, on the website for the uh, College of Physicians, the policy for getting licensed if you were internationally educated or um, what they used to say, foreign, foreign credentials. You know, even that word, foreign, right? It's like mm-hmm. something unknown. I prefer to use internationally educated. Um, so if you went to their website, uh, their policy was that if you were from one of their preferred countries, and it actually said preferred, Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you can guess what those countries were.
0: UK, yeah. New Zealand, Australia. Australia, exactly. Yeah.
1: You know, um, so then you had sort of a fast track to get your license. If you were not, then the policy said that you had to go through these you know, these multiple hurdles and barriers Uh, many of which, if you needed to overcome them, you needed to have a network already in place. Like, for example, having a physician who's willing to supervise your work. So you kind of already need to have connections, which logic says you probably wouldn't if you're a newcomer. Um, So those sort of policies. Um, Asking here in in, uh, New Brunswick, our nurses are generalists. You know, they can work in the ER, they can work in pediatrics and... In some other countries, uh, nurses do specific tasks. So they're an ER nurse, or they're a pediatric nurse, or a gerontologist nurse. So we had nurses. I spoke to a nurse who had 20 years experience in the ER in another country, but couldn't get licensed here because she wasn't experienced. Mm-hmm. You know? But we're crying for nurses. We sure are. Yeah, so it, it, the, the policy itself, doesn't make sense, first of all, and is extremely discriminatory to the point that it actually harms New Brunswickers. Mm-hmm. Um, so you really have to like sit down and say, why do we have this policy? And the answer to why, and this is an answer that was given to me by a high-ranking board member of, um, of one of the hospital, one of the health um, uh, agencies, um, Well, the answer is, we've always done it that way. Sure. We're familiar with physicians from these countries, and so it makes it easier to do it. That's just another way of saying we've closed doors to certain countries and we're gatekeeping.
0: That's fascinating. Um, And as you know, the Gender-Based Analysis Plus is very much about, which I do a lot of work Mm -hmm. on, is very much about making sure that... um, women and intersectional marginalized population groups are taken into consideration when policies are being developed. Yes. What evidence did you find that that was the case here in the province of New Brunswick in terms of that policy development process?
1: Well, you know, the the province is very quick to tell you that they're the only um, province in Canada. Now, I haven't checked this out, so I'm going on what they've told me. um, That they're the only province in Canada that do a GBA plus analysis of their budget. Mm -hmm. and of their cabinet decisions. But the thing is, cabinet decisions are private. They're secret. Confidential, So we don't know the extent to which GBA plus analysis is done to these decisions. So the whole point, if I'm, I mean, please correct me if I'm wrong, because you know far more about this than I do, but I think one of the major points around GBA plus analysis is a transparency to say, we've thought about this decision or this policy from a multiple of lenses. So if you are only applying it to confidential decisions, it seems ironic to me. Very much so. So one of the things that I talk about in my report is, yes, my report is about systemic racism, but we need to deal with systemic discrimination. And many of the things that people were telling me are amplified because they're female, because they're um, you know they're disabled, or they have mental health issues, or they're young. So it is. I would you know I'm hoping that a GBA plus analysis is done for every one of the recommendations that the government decides to enact on.
0: And looking at your report, uh, I took some quotes that I thought we could talk about uh, that come very much to. Um, the touch on the GBA plus different aspects of GBA plus. For example, your report stated that when we discuss current social and this is a quote, current social and economic concerns impacting New Brunswickers, we need to ensure that we remember to add the various lenses of marginalized communities. What did you mean by that?
1: Um, what I what I meant was that my recommendations, although they're meant to fight systemic racism, and this is going to sound strange, I know but they're meant to fight the best possible situation of, of systemic racism. So if we look at our workforce um, and we see that um, you know, men of color are not being promoted, well, let's also look at women of color, mothers of color. You know, what, what extra barriers do they have let's also look at um, you know our newcomers who perhaps have engaged um, have experienced traumatic situations at home because of political instability or because of you know personal experiences so it's you know it's like you're suffering from systemic racism you're experiencing systemic racism um, and that's bad enough but what if you're not the best of the worst does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So you know, like for example, layers. It's like I, the layers of the exactly yeah. like I experience systemic racism, but I live a very comfortable life. You know, mm-hmm. I have lots of privileges, um, economic privileges, health privileges. Um, I experience something that is ironically called, you know, positive racism or the model citizen being um, being of Asian descent. Um, So I can only imagine what it must be like for people who don't have those privileges that I do. Because they're suffering from the same um, systemic racist policy or or, um, initiative. Um, But they have all these other layers to have to to deal with as well.
0: But now in your report, you, I I would say, made an specifically made an effort to highlight almost at the very beginning that you had moved to Canada or to New Brunswick when you were yes. two years old. Yes. Do you want to share your lived experience? And I'm gonna, I I mm-hmm. think it's important that I didn't want to sort of um, label that as, right. uh, as as an Asian woman. I am really mm-hmm. let you sure. label your yeah. own inter, intersectional experience. Do you want to talk about how you faced... Um, maybe policies or programs or services that you clearly felt were had not been designed with you in mind sometime throughout sure. your- Sure,
1: yes. Um, well, I should make it clear that when we, when we came to Canada and I was two, my dad was already here. He was a student at Canadian University. Oh, wow. He says he was the first East Indian student, Acadian University in the education faculty. Wow. Now I don't know if that's true. <laughs> that's yep. what he tells me, <laughs> so we're going to believe him. Um, hopefully, there so, won't be a lot of fact
0: checkers. Yes, though. hopefully. <laughs> uh, yeah.
1: <laughs> so, uh, so he came here as an international student, and then once he finished, my mother and I came. So I was two years old. So we actually moved to Nova Scotia first.
0: Okay.
1: Um, and my dad was a uh, was a teacher, and the program. That he was part of was the Nova Scotia government wanted to bring students over, international students over, kind of like New Brunswick is doing right now, mm-hmm. because they didn't have enough teachers. Right. So they said, if you come over and uh, become a teacher, you will get your instant PR status. So it was, you know, it was very attractive. So my permanent dad was residence. part of that. Yes, permanent mm-hmm. residence, mm-hmm. Yes, I think at the time, at the time, it was called landed Immigrancy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Um, so my dad came over on that finished, he got a job teaching math, but like a lot of government uh, initiatives, not a lot of oversight. So all of a sudden there were too many teachers. So what the Nova Scotia government did was it fired all of its non-Canadian teachers, regardless of tenure. So my dad lost his job. I was five at the time and I had a younger sister. Moncton was uh, a booming town. So it was the growing town. So they decided to move to Moncton. So that's how we came to New Brunswick. Wow. Wow. Um, so, ways, you know, and I'm only looking at this in retrospect because I was sure. five. Right? Yep. <laughs> but one of the things that happened when I started school is that uh, my grade one teacher told my dad um, to stop speaking Hindi at home mm-hmm. because I would learn to speak English with an accent. So I essentially lost my mother tongue. But here's the funny thing, Jeff. My grade one teacher was British. So she actually had you know, spoke English with an accent. <laughs> right? right. And really we all speak English right. with an accent. I mean, I joke around and say, you know, only only Maritimers can make car a four syllable word, right? Right. Like, so the idea that that somehow I would learn to speak English, and I did speak English. It was not I was not learning it. I was fluent in English. But as a result, my parents stopped speaking Hindi at home, mm-hmm. and so now I'm the only um, only daughter of five that understands it completely. Wow! Uh, my my sister of two, who's two years younger than me, she's pretty good as well. But the other ones, like you know, we'll make family jokes. They don't they don't get it, right? and I don't speak it anymore. Now, was that so, a policy
0: or was that a, a behavior of an individual? Teacher? It
1: was a behavior of, you know, of an behavior individual. individual. But yes. probably much more. Yes. Right. But you know, part of the larger policy, sure. education policy of of everyone speaking English on the playground. I mean, I had, there were French kids in my class, mm-hmm. you know, that, that, and I know they were French because I was friends with them. They lived in my neighborhood where they did not speak French in the playground, right? Because you weren't allowed to. So. What my what my grade one teacher said to my dad was really um, was a, you know a, a, an offshoot of that policy where everyone here needs to be the same. You know, we all sat in desks, all in rows. We all learned the same thing. You know, this this social policy of how do we eradicate difference, and and we saw the the extreme of that of with course. residential schools. Absolutely, right.
0: yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so wh- when it comes to the education system, um, are there particular aspects that would, would you know, sort of uh, ways that would improve the development of policies that, that are um, more conducive to women and mm-hmm. uh, intersectional um, group, population groups that you, that you can identify?
1: Well, I think it's too—it's uh, a two-pronged approach. First of all, you have to fight the policies um, or the thinking that support that uh, those policies in the first place of of sameness or how we treat difference. So, as I said, you know, when I went to school, and, and probably the same thing for you, um, uniformity was really pushed. We were all the same. Things, you know, everybody learned the same. Um, and uh, anything that was different was really pushed aside. so if if you had a student who learned differently, you know they they were sent to separate schools, for example. And that was made very clear to us. We knew the kids who mm-hmm. were being sent elsewhere. And then we kind of shifted to, you know, um, difference being, so normalized that it too became into the policy. So, um, you know, only mothers took maternity leave. There was no paternity leave because of course it's the moms that right. want to stay home. Right. And then we saw, you know, more passive uh, executions of those policies where boys would be uh, in education, be um, supported to go into the maths and to sciences and girls were streamed out, right? That wasn't an actual policy, but it was a social offshoot of that policy where we would encourage girls to go into what we called you know, the softer professions.
0: Social offshoot, <laughs> I like that term. And, you know, yeah. and,
1: and then we went into the colorblind approach, right? And uh, where we saw, every, oh, you know, I hear teachers say that, still today, I see all my kids as the same. I don't see color, I don't see ability. It sounds lovely. Yes, it does sound lovely. You know, it does, but. doesn't it? It sounds so kumbaya, <laughs> so fair. But you're right. We know. We know the child who comes to school, um, you know, with an iPad in their backpack is not the same as the child who comes to school without breakfast. Mm-hmm. And we need. To recognize those differences if we're going to help kids so to say that the child who is a refugee who has experienced trauma who is trying to settle into a new culture into a new world is the same as a child from a multi-generational new brunswick family to say you see them the same ignores the barriers and the challenges that that first child is experiencing yeah and for some reason, education, our institutes of education are really good at that. And I don't know why, because it has, there is no data that says that that's successful. In fact, when children succeed, when programs succeed is when we actually say, okay, we need to respect difference and look at difference. That's when we get the best results. So I don't know why we keep going back to this standardized colorblind approach. It's it boggles my mind. <laughs> it's fascinating.
0: Really. Um, so I've learned a lot over the years about the issues that we're talking mm-hmm. about uh, and I started working on GBA plus really when you know I was working on other in aspects of gender budgeting but prior to that but really when um, when the Prime Minister and, and uh, the Finance Minister at the time announced at the federal level because I was living mm-hmm. in Ottawa and working in Ottawa that that GBA plus was going to be a, applied to all, uh, all all programs and policies that were going to be approved by cabinet uh, and I started working more more actively on these on, on these initiatives uh, was really learn, learned a lot but I realized soon on, and I, I like to say this at conferences that, it's, you know, you don't come to a situation as a white male, even mm-hmm. though I'm of Jewish descent, as mm-hmm. a white male who is extremely privileged. Um, you don't pass, you don't cross into an, a zone of enlightenment where you just say, "That's it, I, I am now enlightened. I know everything." Yeah. I mean, there's <laughs> things that you, you've explained to me that I've learned mm-hmm. already. You know, I've already changed my assumptions, and I've got to be open for that. Yes every day yeah.
1: well as do i i mean that was one of the challenges of being commissioner on systemic racism is i was expected um for better or for worse to be able to speak for indigenous people i was expected to be able right. to speak for you know our our um our early uh, settling black communities um for all sort for refugees i mean there's no way I could right. do that and I was fortunate in that my report reflects over a thousand New Brunswick voices incredible um, so I was very fortunate that and that's part of the, the I guess that I'm proud of is that um, is that I was able to attract those voices because there's no way I could have made those recommendations on my own because I didn't know enough and I still don't know enough you know no. like like you point out it's it's a work in progress right it's a,
0: it's a it's constantly being open and, mm-hmm. and learning learning new things. Yes. And I think one of the things that I learned, uh, I was so excited about GBA Plus and I was, I was uh, chairing a lot of national conferences and there were sort of two types of people who'd come to those conferences. One sort of type of person, for lack of a better term, were, were, were civil servants that were working on GBA Plus.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And they were looking for tools and tips on how to, you know, how to apply GBA Plus to their work. But there were other people who were there more of activists Uh, as activists and they were saying this isn't enough Mm -hmm. Um, and I think what they meant by that was that GBA Plus is you know it's great looking forward in terms of new policies and this is what I had it took me some time to learn again as a white as a privileged white Mm -hmm. male it took me time to understand that that actually means that there are there are lots of things that need to be dismantled in the background that will never yes. be subject to a GVA plus examination. Right, um, right. I imagine that must have come up a lot in the work that you did. It did, it
1: did. I mean, how do you, and how do you do that, right? Is, I mean, we have apologies, um, we have, uh, uh, the arts are very good at that, uh, the literature is very good at that, looking at past situations and influencing us, uh, influencing how we think today. But it's not an easy thing to do. And um, one example that comes to mind with the federal government is um, we used to have something in the federal government called the fruit machine. Are you familiar with that? So. I'm going to get my dates wrong. I'm, pic- but it, I'm picturing uh, a
0: vending machine with, yeah. feet, but I really doubt that that's actually <laughs> that's what you're not talking what about. it is,
1: unfortunately. <laughs> so uh, I'll give you the the vague uh, descriptions sure. because I, I, I'm missing the details right now. I used to know them off the top of my head, but somewhere in the 60s and 70s, the RCMP worked with scientists to come up with a machine that you could attach to people. And uh, it would show you images. And based on how you responded to those images, the machine was able to uh, determine whether or not you were homosexual. Hence the term, the fruit machine. Oh, my goodness. Um, And this was used on civil servants right up until the 80s. So this is not something that predates you and I. And if somebody was determined to be a, a, a homosexual by this you know, this really uh, crazy machine, um, they were fired. They lost their public service Right into the 1980s. Right into the 1980s. Um, There's a great documentary, um, and you just Google The Fruit Machine, and it will come up. And it's a documentary um, that looks into, has conversations with real-life victims of this. Now, recently... Um, just in the past few years, Trudeau has uh, apologized for this, but for those people, you know, the ones who were fired, the ones who escaped being fired, you know, uh, that were "quote unquote" caught. How are they doing in the civil service right now? Because many of them are still in the civil service, right? right? How do you how do you work in an environment, even when that environment starts to say? oh, we're looking at people who are part of the 2S LGBTQ plus community as an, as, a, as an equity seeking group now. We're recognizing that. That's great. But what about all the trauma that you've carried for that many years? Um, those are the questions I have around GBA plus um, analysis. And, and how, how does that how does that work? I mm-hmm. guess I put that back to you. <laughs> right? Like, what do you do with that? And you know, the other thing I've heard, and I'm sure you've heard it too, and probably said it, is GBA plus is not an add-on. You know, we've seen that, right? Yep. You do all the work, and then you say, "Oh, right, we got to check off that GBA plus box." All right, let's look at this again. Yep. But all the work's been done. Yeah. So then it becomes an inconvenience. Mm-hmm. It doesn't. It doesn't create uh, a better policy. Um, so those are concerns that I have. And so I'm glad that there's people like you doing that work and encouraging people or you know, showing people this needs to be done at the beginning. You need to be thinking about this all along, not just you know, uh, the bow that you wrap on this, on this perfect policy.
0: Right. You are a very skilled interviewee, putting the que- flipping the question back to the interviewer. I'm, till- I'm <laughs> well, totally kidding. My,
1: you know a lot more about this than me, so I'm not going to pretend to answer that no, question. No, no, this is great. <laughs> this
0: is great. Uh, this is this is what conversations are all about. And I do think that, I, I mean, there's no reason, I, I'll take the federal government as an example, mm-hmm. because I think as you've acknowledged then you know, the Brunswick is at a much more nascent level uh, in, in terms of GBA plus. But I think there's no reason why a government, any government could, not go back and look at previous policies um, or existing policies mm-hmm. that that have been adopted from a GBA plus lens. I think the problem is it's it you know the, is there and this is not an excuse making, but the, the reason that they're probably reticent to do it is it, it's a can of worms.
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, and
0: absolutely. it would require incredible capacity. Right. But I think yes. you know I I think there are many people who are. Who don't feel I was going to say cynical and I decided mm-hmm. not to use that word because that's the wrong that, that that implies they have some kind of tip on their shoulder right, right? right. but that 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 feel that, that that's not going far enough and I can I can see that I can see that so I, it's it's a a question that really has to be to be asked and I think a province like New Brunswick that is only if if they're at the nascent level mm-hmm. it may not be the right time to ask that question but but it in terms of a sequencing perspective, but I think from you know at the federal level, I think it should be a question that somebody should be shouting out yes. at one of Trudeau's press conferences, or <laughs> yes. uh, or, or the the, the current uh, wage minister Marcy, right. Ian, and sort of saying how are we gonna how are we gonna do that? Because right. I think that's Im- that's important. How
1: are we gonna reconcile this? Yeah, how are we gonna? You know, gonna if we're gonna use that? a a popular term, how are we gonna reconcile this? Um, and it's it is a big question. And probably you know right now there's lots of academics. Uh, writing books about this and, mm-hmm. and working on this. Um, I don't know. I don't know. But one thing I will say, because I, I I've I experienced this in my own work as commissioner. so And it's going to sound like um, I'm complaining. And maybe I am. Well, <laughs> so just, after, so just, after what just you've uh, gone through, I think you have a right to complain a little if bit. If I'm complaining.
0: She's so uh, negative. <laughs> No, not at all,
1: not at all. No, it's actually the opposite. It's actually, um, you know, groups that are saying, you didn't take this far enough. Um, And I understand that. Again, my experiences with overt and systemic racism are traumatic. But compared to other groups, I fared well. You know, they weren't. If I can say this, traumatic enough. Sure. If we're gonna, you know, if we're gonna start looking at hierarchy, which I really don't think we should do, but one of the um, criticisms that I received in my report is I didn't go far enough. Mm -hmm. Right. I understand that. Um, My response, and I don't know if it's an excuse or whatever, but it's my it's my response is there needs to be a place for everyone. There needs to be the place for the people who are screaming from the rooftop saying, this is not enough. You know, We need to totally dismantle the system. We need those voices. But we also need the voices of people saying, okay, I'm willing to be patient. I'm willing to take this journey one step at a time because our listeners are so diverse. So if our listeners are diverse, then the speakers need to be equally diverse and leave space for everyone. It does no one any good to say, you're not radical enough. You're, you know, you're colonized. You're like, um, you know, there's lots of examples. You're, you're, you're a sellout, um, and I'm not just talking about me. Uh, I'm talking oh, about- Oh, I totally feel like, you like you
0: a sellout, 1,000%. Um, you know, you're, yep. you're
1: not an ally enough. Right. I have a real issue with that. Yeah. Um, For me, it's like literacy. That's the example I've started to use, a metaphor. When a child is in grade one, and they bring you this book that has like four pages in it, right? And it says something like, this is a dog. This is my dog. That child's reading. We would never say, here's a grade five book. Oh, you can't read that? You're not literate. No, that child's literate for where they are right now. And when they get to grade five, and they can read a grade five book, it's more sophisticated, it's more complex, and they are literate. We wouldn't give them a university tome and say, hey, read this thesis, oh, you're not literate. So that's how I see activism as well. We're all literate at different places. And it does no good for somebody who is extremely literate, who's able to throw out you know, the latest academic terms to somebody who's in grade five, and then saying you have no right to be part of this conversation because you're not you're not saying enough, you're not doing enough. Does that make sense?
0: It does, and actually, it's funny. I, I, I'm my little conversation going on in my head right now is that we're kind of playing Jeopardy, the game Jeopardy, because you answered the question that I was going to ask. Oh, So okay. now <laughs> I'll pose the question, which is just slightly different. Right. Which, which is, um, my concern is a lot of the work that I do is, is related to strengthening democratic practices. Mm-hmm. And, and I try to call call out in, in Canada, I believe philosophically, that, you know, unlike 30 years ago when we sort of looked at d- democracy as the v- a victory uh, over authoritarianism and right. communism and all that kind of stuff, that now we've got to really call out those practices in our own country. And we are seeing examples of populism and democratic mm-hmm. backsliding, certainly in Canada. Um,
1: Absolutely. Much,
0: you know... In the obviously in the United States as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and the more that there are progressive voices like yours, the more that there is going to be people on the other side who are going to feel th- very threatened by th- those messages um, and, and are going to push back hard and say, you yes. know, uh, look, there's just... There's, you know, I'm also suffering as a white male. I'm not talking yes. about myself, yeah, but you know, no, I um, and that those are the people who voted for Donald Trump. We we know that, yeah, right? Yeah. People who feel that they've been discriminated against. And why mm. are these other people getting all this special consideration? Did you face that over the last year in 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 dialogue with people, uh, and how how much pushback is there out there?
1: Um, yes, I guess the, the quick answer is yes, I did. Um, I faced it in two ways. Uh, one was more uh, covert. So um, I've said this before. I've shared this before. You know the hate mail that we got.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: E- mainly emails to my office or uh, people who would message me through Facebook. So I actually, you know, really <laughs> slowed down my my Facebook usage um, because, um, yeah, just outright. Hate messages. Mm -hmm. You know, I said during my press conference when I released the report that I actually received a message from somebody telling me they knew where my children went to school. (gasps) Oh my goodness! And which makes you think, like, why am I doing this work? At that point, you're like, why Why am I here? That the other thing that surprised me um, and was more in the open is how much pushback. Um, I got from diverse groups, the groups that I was actually supposed to be representing. Really? And I think it's a colonial mindset. I think it, there is um, such a history of divide and conquer, right? Like I, I saw this cartoon, I loved it. It was, um, it, was, it was a man and he's got a whole bunch of cookies in front of me, sitting at a table. There's a whole bunch of cookies sitting in front of him. And then there's also a, a, a gentleman of color and a woman. And they each have one cookie in front of them. And the, the, the man is saying to them, you better watch that person. They're going to take your cookie. So we have been conditioned through colonization, through uh, imperialism, to be this divide and conquer. Like, you're my enemy because you have one cookie and I have one cookie. Right. And if you get more of the equity pie, I'm somehow going to suffer. That's right. The right. zero sum game. That's right. Absolutely. That's right. Yeah. And so I was disappointed, and I say this in my report and in, in the message from the commissioner. I actually say this: that is, I was disappointed by the number of times I saw infighting. I saw this. Um, you know, my situation is worse, and absolutely, there are. I could break it down and say, yes, you know, from um, a youth achievement level. Indigenous people are worse. Uh, from you know, um, uh, a settlement level, refugees are worse. Like, we can play that game, but I don't see the value of it. And that's something that I found really problematic when I was doing my work. And now that I've released my report, some of the feedback has been like that. And you know, I, I'm quite comfortable in saying that I think the media helps ignite and flames those fires to have that conversation. You know, there was so much emphasis put on what was not in that report Mm -hmm. rather than what was in that report.
0: Sure. Last question. Mm -hmm. What are your hopes that those recommendations or your prospects or the prospects for those recommendations in your report being implemented?
1: I'm actually very hopeful. For a couple of reasons. A, I'm a hopeful person. <laughs>
0: right? Well, you have to be an adjustment. Yeah, job like I mean, exactly. Yeah. We can't do yeah. this type of work no. and
1: not be hopeful, That's right? True. That's true. Because uh, because you just wouldn't get up <laughs> in the That's morning. Right. So I'm a hopeful person. Um, the second reason is, as I said at the beginning, the province showed incredible courage and leadership to have a position such as mine in the first place. So, you know, if uh, lightning can strike the same place twice. And so they were courageous doing it, or creating it. I think they, sh- they are gonna show courage doing it as well. The other reason is I saw incredible passion and dedication in the civil service. Um, I, you know, I talked to people in all different departments, so not just in the diversity, inclusion sector of a department. Right, the converts. Exactly, you know, more than the choir, more than the the VisMins or the Indigenous. Mm -hmm. I saw everyday people who are doing their best to educate themselves and ensure that the work that they do is inclusive, is equitable and being very um, self-reflective in that work. So uh, I saw that a lot, you know, and, and that cannot be understated. So I am very hopeful that the civil service of New Brunswick, that there is a large mass of people there that want to do this right. Finally, um, you know, I'm, I, I want to pass the baton to community organizations. And uh, and say to them, um, find something in the report that speaks to you, and mm-hmm. then just put your full force of voice behind it. You know, I don't expect everyone to agree with every one of my recommendations. I would be highly suspect if someone did. You know, um, but uh, there's I'm hoping there's something there for everyone, and our organizations, our, our multicultural organizations, settlement organizations. Um, you know our stakeholders; they're incredibly resilient, because the processes to help people to fight discrimination is not easy. So uh, I'm I'm hopeful because of the strength that they've shown as well.
0: And and that's a very good point. Um, you know, in closing, uh, I've done a lot of work with parliaments around the world, mm-hmm. including legislatures across Canada. And I think, you know, I've always I felt that I've not emphasized enough the important role of civil society. Yes. Uh, because they are the ones who are going to push for, and unfortunately, we do have a very robust civil society mm-hmm. in Canada, and that's probably what's keeping us moving forward. So, Manju Varma, congratulations on all the work that you've done Thank to get you. this report out, the blood, sweat, and tears that I'm sure went into it.
1: <laughs> yes, lots of tears. <laughs> no blood. No blood. Sweat and tears. Sweat and tears, yes. Right. <laughs>
0: Um, but congratulations, that's a huge, monumental accomplishment. And uh, I like the way you put the idea of passing the baton to, to others now to, to push for implementation.
1: Yes, my work here is done. <laughs> Absolutely.
0: For now. For now, for now. Yes, yes. It's been great talking to you. Thank it's you so much. It's been great
1: talking to you. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I appreciate it.
0: My pleasure. Human Coined is an integral part of Nexus PFM Consulting, if you enjoyed this episode, you can also find us on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. If you have any questions about the work we do, you can contact us at info at